You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. So without further ado, we are getting into the book of Mark once again. We are jumping into Mark chapter 6, and we are digging into God's Word together. If you haven't been with us, we've just been systematically walking through the gospel of Mark week in and week out and just getting Jesus. The, the beauty of the book of Mark is that the way in which Mark writes, it's like a fast action movie, that there isn't a moment that you don't get a powerful experience of Jesus interacting with humanity. And uh, it's been super powerful and encouraging and sometimes confronting because we see that Jesus is God. And so we see God in the flesh coming in and the kingdom of God is breaking into humanity. And it is so relatable for our lives. And so if you've been here, you've known that. I'm sure every week, um, Lord willing and prayerfully, God's spoken to you for in in your life, in in your, your specific context how uh, Jesus wants to use you and how he wants to refine us and how he wants us to be more like him. And so we're going to continue in that. Um, We are going through a larger portion of scripture today than normal. Usually we kind of inch along most weeks, right? It's taken us like five months to do five chapters. Um, But we are going to be going through Mark 6 verses 1 through 29. I know, I know it's a lot, but the, these are three distinct stories here. Um, some, I will, I will tell you, are pretty graphic. One is with Jesus, one is with the disciples, and one is with John the Baptist, but all of them have a common thread. Like, all of them are related. All of them um, should be, I think, pieced together to kind of tell this broader story or this common theme going on, and that common thread, which we'll see after we read it or while we're reading it this morning, is that... All Jesus, the disciples, and John the Baptist were all rejected, and they were all despised by doing the will of God. We'll see that Jesus was despised and rejected from his own hometown. The disciples, Jesus warned the disciples as they went out and did ministry that you too will encounter rejection from humanity. And then we see in this very graphic, very gruesome in some ways picture, John the Baptist is put to death for following Jesus. And these same realities are promised to us by Jesus himself. And so that's why it's not just these historical narratives and these these stories that we can maybe glean something about. They are for us as well. And so let's listen up. So I'm reading out the New Living Translation. I have it on the screen. If you have that translation, cool. If you don't, um, then you can kind of follow along. But let's read the entirety of the 29 verses. Um, So here we go. Verse 1, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did you get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. 
Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Story number two, verse seven. Then Jesus went from village to village, teaching the people, and he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listens to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. And our last story this morning, verse 14. Herod, the king, soon heard about Jesus because everyone was talking about him. Some were saying, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. This is why he can do such miracles. Others said, he's the prophet Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. When Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has come back from the dead. And then it recaps the story. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, is it, against, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless. For Herod respected John, and knowing that he was a good man and a holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked about John. Even so, he liked to listen to him. Herodias' chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, and leading citizens of Galilee. Then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance and greatly pleased Herod and his guests. Ask me anything you like, and the king said to the girl, and I will give it to you. He even vowed, I will give you whatever you ask up to half of my kingdom. She went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? Her mother told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. And the king deeply regretted what he had said, but because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her. So she, he immediately sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in the prison, brought his head on a tray, and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came to get his body and buried it in a tomb. Um, this is the word of the Lord that God has us in this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, and we're thankful. We're thankful people that we have your word in our hands that we can freely read it, that we can spend time in it, not fear of governmental oppression, not fear of anything like that, but we can freely read it and you've preserved it for us. And so God, we thank you for this opportunity and we pray, God, that as we've heard these stories and we've heard uh, uh, the rejection and the severity and even the death in these stories, that you would help us to 
unpack these now. You'd help us to understand how they can and how they do relate to our own lives. But if anything, Lord, we pray that you would soften and prepare our hearts to be a people that care much more about you and obeying your will than what people think of us or how we feel or how we fit in, that we, you would change us from the inside out to be a transformed, spirit-filled people that are, that, are, that are most concerned about obeying the will of our Father. And so God, would you strengthen us? Would you equip us? Would you teach us here this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So... Obviously, these passages and truths are hard to swallow, especially because they aren't just stories about these historical figures 2,000 years ago that have no correlation in our own lives. They are very much relevant and true for us because we, too, are followers of Jesus. I mean, for those of us in this room that that are, right? We're followers of Jesus, and we will encounter hardships. It might not be the same, but they may be similar hardships as we participate in the building of God's kingdom. If there was a news flash here, it would be, we will suffer rejection from society if we follow Jesus. If we obey his will, if we share the good news, if we're just, just obedient to his word and we're ambassadors for Christ, we will suffer rejection, persecution for the truth that we believe. We see this first with Jesus. Jesus himself suffers rejection in his hometown. Right? Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, right? But he grew up in Nazareth. And for those of you that, just a little context, right, we've been kind of camping out on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. That's where we've been the whole book of Mark. In or around this little piece of, this little lake, you see Galilee's more like a lake, in northern Israel. And that's where the, the bulk of the Gospels take place. Nazareth is about 20 miles to the southwest. I got a picture. I got pictures for you. I like to show pictures of Israel. So um, this is Israel, right? You got Jerusalem right in the middle. Up top, um, you see this kind of like, uh, I don't know, a little lake up there, right? There's a bigger lake, the Dead Sea. There's a little blue line. That's the Jordan River. At the top is the Sea of Galilee. And just to the left there, southwest, is Nazareth. So it's away. It's about 20 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. I have another photo for you. Okay, don't, don't listen to like JesusTrail.com. I don't know what that is, but I just pulled this off of Google. Um, that probably is cool, Jesus Trail. But anyway, if uh, Capernaum up on the top of the Sea of Galilee, this is like a zoomed-in map of what you just saw, if you're not following me. Capernaum is like Peter's hometown where much of Jesus uh, did a bunch of miracles. And so the way in which to get to Nazareth down here is windy, it's sloped, 20 miles, takes a long time. Um, funny thing is, uh, I have another picture for you. This is me and my wife, Zoe. If you don't know Zoe, she was... 
one leading worship over here today. Amazing, awesome, better half. Um, we went to Israel when we, before we even were dating, and this is Mount Arbel. So this road, this kind of valley, is the road that Jesus would have taken. Someone just snapped the shot, super cool that we have it. But we're looking over this precipice. So the Sea of Galilee is just to our right, and then Jesus would have taken this road, and just in the distance is Nazareth. So for those of you guys that are visual, um, this is what Jesus was doing. You're good with the picture, thanks. Um, the reason for him going there is kind of unknown, but we can only suggest that these are the people that he knew best. Like these, are, these are people they were closest to. This is his family. This is his neighbors. I mean, he was a carpenter, so he probably worked in everybody's house with his dad, Joseph. I mean, this is his community. This is his hometown. And so he was most likely going back there to minister to those that were closest to him. Uh, Modern-day Nazareth is, you know, tens of thousands of people, but back then it was about 500 people. So over the course of the 30 years of Jesus growing up there, he probably knew everybody. And what happens is, is that Jesus gets there, he travels right southwest, 20 miles, he gets to Nazareth, he knows everybody, and he begins to teach in their synagogue, and it says that people were amazed. But they also, they were amazed that it was Jesus doing it, and they quickly began to think, how does Jesus speak like this? Because everybody knew him from when he was like an infant. So quickly, they're like, wait, this is Jesus? I thought he was a carpenter. Wasn't he this little kid that would always run around and bug us? Like, what's weird is he was a kid that never sinned, so I don't know how that works, because he's perfect. Like, I don't, I don't, good kid. Oh, isn't this the good kid that never got in trouble? Um, But they begin to, like, quickly pick at his humanity, right? Isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this the son of Mary? Wait, his brothers are, are these guys, and his sisters live here. How could this be? So instead of like marveling at Jesus, they were quick to be like, what are you doing? Right? And isn't that maybe true of the closest people in our lives sometimes when we come to know Jesus? Instead of, uh, you know, maybe people accepting us, our family may be sometimes the quickest to be like, what? What? You said what? You prayed what prayer? You're going to what church? Right? Our family's quick to, to maybe know us and, 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 and dig in a little bit more. Um, but this is what's happening with Jesus. They hear him speaking, they're amazed, but they quickly say, how could this be? And we see that they were deeply offended and they actually refused to believe in him. I mean, it was like, not just like, who's this guy and how did he get all this wisdom and what's he doing in the synagogue? But they were deeply offended. Literally in the, work, in the, in the Greek, the noun form of this word is where we get the English word scandal. So like these people were like scandalized by Jesus in the literal, you know, in the, in the original language. They were profoundly offended. They didn't want to have any identification with him. And they were even embarrassed or shamed by him. I mean, that, that's the, the, the deeper meaning of when they said they were offended by Jesus. They were like, dude, I am so offended. I am so, I'm scandalized by you. I want nothing to do with you. And I, I refuse to believe that you are who you are. This is his hometown, this is his his neighbors and his friends and his community. And Jesus' response to them is that because of their unbelief, verses 5 and 6 of our text today, because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands just on a few sick people and heal them. And he was actually amazed at their unbelief. 
right? That, that's a pretty crazy statement. Jesus is, is amazed, not at their faith, not at their belief, but their unbelief. And what happened was is that their lack of faith actually caused a decreased uh, a decrease in miracles and healings, right? Everywhere that Jesus had gone thus far, I mean, crowds had been coming, like thousands of people from miles away, and Jesus healed everything and everybody. He goes back to his hometown, and because of their refusal to believe, their offense and their lack of faith, it actually caused a decrease in healings. I mean, think of that. Right, we just read last week in Capernaum of the great faith of, of Jairus and the woman in the crowd, right? Remember that the woman in the crowd said, As, even if I can just touch Jesus, I, I believe that I can be healed. I don't even have to ask him. I'm just going to like make my way through a crowd, touch Jesus, and I'm healed. I mean, her faith was incredible. Then Jairus, the father of, his, of the girl that had passed away, he had the faith to believe that Jesus could heal, and so Jesus did heal. And so just like last week, we saw examples of great faith, faith to raise people from the dead. And this week in Jesus' hometown, with his closest friends and his closest community, he was rejected. He was rejected by his friends and his neighbors and his community for doing the will of his Father who is in heaven. And just even in that first story, if, you've, if, you've, if you know scripture and you know the word of God even a little bit, we know that Jesus is our ultimate example. And as followers, we're to be like him. And so I want us to hold on to the fact that he was rejected by those closest to him. And just to, just to, just to, just to hold on to that for a little bit, that even Jesus himself with his closest community, with people that he grew up, that he knew forever, that when he started doing the will of the Father and obeying God and living for God, they rejected him entirely and almost, it would seem, kick him out of town. The second story we see here is that right after that, Jesus begins to go to other villages, right? He begins to do what he's been doing, go, go, go and heal people and preach the gospel. And he sends out the disciples and it says that they send him out, they send him out two by two. Right? Jesus gives them authority to preach the gospel. They don't go alone. There's 12 of them. And so six groups of two go to different cities. And uh, man, these guys are green. You know what I mean by that? Like they have never done this before. Like this kind of evangelism hadn't happened. We've heard that a lot. Like go out and make disciples and we share our faith. They haven't done this. I mean, these just are like fishermen and tax collectors, and these guys have just been walking around with Jesus, seeing him do it. You know how different it is when you're just like watching someone else do something, but then when that someone else says, it's your turn, you're like, whoa, whoa, buddy. Right? This is where the real discipleship came in. This is where the real like faith came in because they, for the first time, this is really the first time we see this in the Gospels, that the disciples are going forth. Without Jesus, they're going now into villages where Jesus isn't, and they're doing the same things. And then if it doesn't get worse, look what Jesus says. He says, don't take anything. Don't take a bag, don't take any money. Just take, like, your slippers and, like, get out of here and, like, try to find a place to live. And if people don't, like accept you in their house and like leave the town. And it's like these very vague, simple instructions. And it's like, I can imagine these disciples are just like shaking, right? They've never done this before. They're green, but they've seen Jesus. And pretty much what Jesus tells them to do is go 
And because he tells them not to take anything, you know, hardly any possessions, what it does in a beautiful way, without saying it, is it makes them fully reliant upon God. Right? They have no comfort. They have no safety nets. They have nothing but God himself, and, they, and it keeps them very desperate. But what's significant about the second story that we just read is that Jesus warned them of rejection. He warned them, like, some people won't receive you, and here's instructions of what you should do when people don't receive you. And it was also very real and powerful because they just were with Jesus when Jesus was rejected. Right? They literally just got kicked out of Nazareth almost. Then they walk, and then Jesus says, hey, you got to go do it yourself. And he says, hey, you're going to be rejected too probably. And so it became very real and powerful for them because they had just, they had just witnessed Jesus being rejected. Right? This was their rabbi, their teacher. Their God was pretty much ran out of town by those that supposedly knew and loved him most. We don't see them directly rejected here. Like we don't see the story goes and they went out and they're all rejected and blah, blah, blah. We actually see God using them powerfully to cast out demons and to heal people and they're doing it. Like they're going for it and God's using them. But we know very clear that the entirety of these disciples' lives from that point on were filled with rejection, with being arrested, with being persecuted and many put to death. I mean, this was just the beginning and this is the first time we see Jesus warning them, like go, my will is that you would go, but just so you know, you will be rejected. You will be persecuted. You will be despised by humanity or much of humanity in the same way that I was. And most of the New Testament is either the disciples or the apostles or their direct followers, the early church, being persecuted for their faith. Like that's most of the New Testament is when the gospel spread out of little, you know, Jerusalem, little Galilee, little Israel, into Asia, into Europe. As the gospel starts reaching the rest of the world, most of the growth of the gospel is because of persecution is because of the church being scattered because they were despised and rejected by many. And then our third story this morning is we see it kind of come to a head with John the Baptist, right? The story is weird, it's gruesome, it's like this weird party going on, and then ultimately what happens is, is you know, John's trying to stand up for righteousness, and then, you know, the government, the kings... Um, are not happy with that, and there's this party, and then it's just this weird scene, right, of like, hey, you can have anything you want because you did this cool dance. The girl asks the mom. The mom hates John the Baptist, says, hey, cut his head off, and the king has to do it. I mean, it's just like so weird. But ultimately, following Jesus for John the Baptist led to imprisonment and then ultimately leads to his death. And if you remember, John the Baptist, we talked about him like the first week. Week one, chapter one of Mark, we see John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is like the forerunner of Christ. He's the one in the wilderness yelling, crying out that there's someone greater than me coming. It's the Messiah who the prophets promised 800 years ago. And so we call John the Baptist like the herald or the forerunner of Christ. And so he was baptizing people in the wilderness. He actually baptized Jesus in the Jordan. 
And Jesus would go on to call John the Baptist the greatest man born among men. Like he was the greatest born among men. The reason why he didn't say himself is because, remember, virgin birth didn't happen. He's not the greatest born among men. He's the greatest born from Mary through God, right? But he calls John the greatest born among men. And what we see here is that John is imprisoned for standing up for righteousness, preaching the gospel by Herod, and then he's ultimately killed for it, right? He's arrested, he stands up for righteousness, for preaching the gospel, obeying the will of the Father, and it ends up getting him killed. It's like this progression, right, in these three stories. It's Jesus being rejected, it's the disciples going forth, him warning them that they will, and they end up being rejected by society. And then we see it culminating in actually the death of the one that Jesus said is the greatest born among men. And what I want to do just to kind of like wrap, wrap all around, wrap our heads around that and give us some application, just there's like three quick points. Well, you know me, I kind of talk a lot, so hopefully they're quick, but they're really good. They're important. Now, they're not really good, but they're just important. Uh, you know what I mean. I'm going to stop talking. I'm just going to keep talking. How about that? Three things. Three things we can get from this. One is, as followers of Jesus, the same is promised to us. That's number one. Number two is God, but God is our source of joy in the midst of rejection. And number three, Jesus is our example of a faithful life of rejection. So here's what I mean. As followers of Jesus, the same is promised to us. Rejection of a believer is inevitable. Persecution is promised. Jesus said so. And, you know, I think so many of us are in here right now saying, I wish he hadn't said this. But this is the truth of what it means to follow Jesus. John 15, 18 through 20 says, he's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to his followers. Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of the world, because of this world, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. This is hard. This is uncomfortable. But this is the way of Jesus. This is why following Jesus isn't just a like single prayer or a flippant thing because it, it's constantly tested. Like if you're really following Jesus, you're going to encounter persecution, it says. And for some of us, that's hard to grasp because we're like, what do you mean persecution? Maybe like in another country or a closed country, but what do you mean by that? Well, it's, it means that in many ways, living for Jesus is going to be contrary to what the world believes and that at your works and in your family and in your community, there may be times where you are rejected where people take an offense to it, where people no longer talk to you anymore, no longer want to be around you. This is like the reality of following Jesus. Following Jesus is about taking up our cross, right? It's walking, living, and suffering as he did, right? That's what he also said to his disciples. You want to follow me? Take up your cross daily and follow me. Rejection for us may look like loneliness or isolation, like at a workplace, or it could be loss of friends, or in greater cases, loss of family. And for those of you, it depends on your unique, 
your workplace or your friends or your family or how uh, opposed to maybe Christianity they are, but this is not uncommon that the reason maybe why you don't want to share your faith at a workplace or let people know is because you know it's going to change the relationship, right? Either they're gonna like try to fight you on it or they're not gonna wanna talk to you or in some way it's going to be different, Right, that could be a loss with family. Maybe your family grew up in a certain religion and it was even more than just a religion, but it was like a culture for them. And so it's, it's a part of the family that we do this. And because you're not doing that anymore and you're doing something else, there becomes division. The closeness isn't there. It's very much like that all around the world. In great cases, there's a loss of family. There's a... Um, there's a loneliness, there's an isolation, there's a loss of friendship that come from following Jesus. For our life here and now, it may just be that rejection, you know, at work or with relationships, but it's a very real thing in other closed countries that our brothers and sisters in Christ not only are like ostracized pretty much from society, but even maybe killed for their faith. It's in such opposition to what the belief system of that certain country is that people are killed for their faith in Christ. This is not um, some archaic idea. This is happening all around the world all the time right now. But regardless of the the varying degrees, rejection in any sort can be the hardest thing that we cope with or the hardest thing that we walk through. Right? I think I can speak for everyone here. We want to try to avoid that at all costs. That's like part of our life. Like we wake up in the morning and we say, how can I like avoid drama? How can I avoid relational discord? How can I be accepted by everyone? I mean, this is the things that we think. Right? We try to avoid rejection at all costs. We try to steer free of persecution or anything that would ostracize us. And so a lot of times we even are... are, are The way in which that we view life is trying to avoid this, but I would fight to say that that is not at all how we're supposed to live. Instead, we're supposed to be, God, what is your will for my life? I need to do that, and despite the costs, I want to follow you. Instead of, let me try to avoid and just be a peacemaker and make everybody happy and be accepted by everybody and don't make any ripples, right? We we all try to do that, but at the end of the day, we're we're to follow God's will despite the costs. That's what Jesus did. That's what his disciples did. And uh, because of that, persecution is promised. Rejection is promised. But even though that's very real, that God is and can be our source, source of joy, right? God, by the power of his spirit, can bring us joy in the midst of rejection, in the midst of loneliness, in the midst of suffering, Um, This may be the most like foreign, unnatural, and maybe unbelievable part of Jesus, but it's, it's exactly what he does. Right, he brings peace where there is no peace. He, he exchanges mourning for dances, beauty for ashes. I mean, this is, this is what Jesus does. He brings joy in the midst of sorrow. Right, he means, he brings, um, he gives us his presence when we are isolated. He brings, he accepts us always, even though the world may reject us. 
And Jesus told us about this joy. He actually looked at persecution and rejection in a different way. And he preached on this in the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. This is what Jesus says about being persecuted. He said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Like, like be glad. You're glad if you're persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said that, but then the disciples went through it in the book of Acts. They suffered, and when they were before the Sanhedrin and the government at the time, they had just been flogged. They had literally just been beaten for their faith. This is what they said, Acts 5, verses 40 through 42. They called the apostles in, and they had flogged them. Then they ordered them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. And what did they do? It says that day after day in the temple uh, courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, God, by the power of his spirit, had so transformed these men that even when they were beaten and persecuted and rejected and told not to, and if you do it, we'll do it again, they said, God, I rejoice that you've counted me worthy enough to follow you in this way, and we're not going to stop, and we're going to keep going. I mean, this is Peter and the boys. These are these ragtag fishermen, but that were transformed by God. And they counted suffering as a joy. Peter, same Peter we've been talking about, going through all of this, fisherman from Galilee, would write in his letter to the church scattered abroad in 1 Peter 4, he would say, dear friends, right, speaking of brothers and sisters in Christ, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. Such a great picture of God is using you to to go forth in this world, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And as you see his glory being revealed, you're going to suffer for it, but be very glad because you're participating in the kingdom of God going forth. Don't be surprised. Don't be worried. Don't be caught off guard. Conflict will be natural for you. Rejection will be natural, but that uh, is something that you should not concentrate on. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, right? And so through God's spirit, not only them, but we are able to be a people that are joyful, secure, and safe in Jesus in the midst of the harshest rejection and even deadly persecution. Like, we, it's not like a foreign thing or like, hey, like, just try harder or like, be stronger. It's like, by the spirit of God, you're able to actually have joy when someone that's close to you maybe no longer speaks to you when you speak the name of Jesus to them. Instead of being sorrowful and broken and, and wrecked over it and trying to avoid it, you're faithful to Jesus and you're, and you're joyful even though the world may reject us.
And lastly, just to kind of tie us up and, and to, to remind us of what's most important, important is that Jesus is our example. Like he did it first. He suffered far more. He was strengthened by the Father. He overcame. He finished well. He was victorious. And when we fix our eyes upon Jesus, we receive encouragement and strength knowing that he lived a life full of rejection, but he fully obeyed and pleased the Father to the end. Like it's not uh, undoable. It's not like impossible. By God's spirit and by Jesus' example, we're to be strengthened to be a people that are faithful to God even in the midst of rejection. I want to leave you with the last thing I'll say, the last verse. For context's sake, I'll tell you what it's about. This is Hebrews chapter 12, what I'm going to read. Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. It's because it, it, it lists men and women that were very flawed and very normal, but they had a lot of faith to trust Jesus, and they all suffered greatly. They all suffered greatly, but they all had great faith and were filled with much joy. That's chapter 11, the hall of faith that describes their faith. And in chapter 12, the very first couple verses describes how they got through it, how they lived through rejection joyfully. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, speaking of chapter 11, we have such a great cloud of people we just spoke about, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What do we do? Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus, fix our eyes on Jesus. And instead of living a life trying to avoid rejection, we become a people that are being obedient to the will of God by God's strength for his glory despite the cost, amen? And so as we go into worship, we need to present our fears to the Lord, right? We need to present our sources of rejection to Jesus so that we can say, God, I need your help, I need strength. Like, I need you to strengthen me so that I can obey you even though it may mean this. So now I will stop talking. I'm gonna pray and we'll worship Jesus and we'll come before the Lord with very real things in our lives and ask God to give us joy. God, we thank you for your ability to bring us joy in the midst of what everything would look like the worst thing ever. That you're able to bring us peace where there's total unrest. And for some of us, Lord, that are struggling with even believing that that's possible or fear of ever even doing something like this, we ask that you would minister to us.
As we worship you now, as we sing these songs, as we declare your attributes, we ask God that you would meet with us and that we would commune with you. Pray that you would get glory right now, be exalted, be lifted up for the God that you are, for our great God and Savior. Praise things in Jesus' name.